0: This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: Hello and welcome to the stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, this coming weekend in China, the Chinese Communist Party is holding a Congress and every five years these events take place. And this weekend is particularly significant because uh, President Xi Jinping is expected to be given another term as leader of the country. And this time there won't be a time limit. And he will also, it is believed, get the title chairman, which of course, Mao Zedong was chairman Mao. And now we may well have and will have, it seems, a uh, chairman Qi. It's also very important for other reasons, the geopolitical instability and China's own internal problems as well. It is undoubtedly the second most powerful and important country in the world. And to talk about what we may expect and what's happening in China, it's a pleasure to welcome to the stand, Ian Williams, who was a foreign correspondent for Channel 4 News based in Russia. He was also based in Asia. He worked for nine years for NBC television um, as an a- their Asia correspondent between 2006, 2015. He was based in Bangkok and Beijing. He is a winner of an Emmy and a BAFTA award for his discovery and reporting on the Serb detention camps during the war in Bosnia. And he has just written a book about China. It's called The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War. His name is Ian Williams. That book is published by Berlin and is highly recommended. Ian, thank you very much for joining us on the stand. The importance of this weekend can't be overstated, really, because it looks like she will uh, achieve something very rare in being president for life or indeed chairman for life, which Mao did. But it is really a change, isn't it, from what, for example, Deng Xiaoping said. A long time ago, that you should always have the possibility of change after a certain period.
1: That's right. Uh, It's uh, his coronation, if you like, this coming weekend, and the importance of Deng Xiaoping is after the experience, the horrific experience under Mao, he tried to ensure that there would be time limits, that there would be a more collective system of of rule in China. And under that system, leaders were given a maximum of two five year periods in office and were, were required to uh retire. Um Xi is sweeping that aside. And the whole purpose of Deng was to try and avoid any abuse of power as we saw under Mao. And now of course we see Xi Jinping emerging as the most powerful leader since Xi, and these basic safeguards that Deng tried to introduce now being swept aside.
0: Yes, and in a piece you wrote for uh, the Sunday Times last week, you quote a video which was made by a 105-year-old party elder, Song Ping, a, a respected old revolutionary, in which he said the only path to the development and progress of contemporary China is reform and opening the country up. This was seen, and you interpreted it in your piece, as a direct challenge to Xi.
1: That's right, Damon. These elders, the party elders, remain incredibly powerful um, in, in the background um, and we hadn't heard anything of Song Ping for a while, and then he, he popped up in a video of a conference he'd attended, making these remarks. And this has been interpreted in several different ways, but they've certainly got people chatting in Beijing. And the consensus seems to be that this is a shot across the bow to Xi, because everything that Xi has done, particularly in the last few years, has been a repudiation of reform and opening up. He's gone back. On the economic reforms. He's centralized power more in China. Um, he has introdu- introduced repression in a way that we haven't seen for many years. He has um, clobbered private companies. Um, in China, and this is seen as a rowback of the reforms that we saw under Deng Xiaoping. So these remarks were were, were quite significant, um, and as is usual in China, they're, they're they're subtle, they're careful. In fact, the words chosen by Songping were in fact the words of Xi himself that he uttered early in his um, time as leader uh, before he really consolidated power and started rowing back on the reforms of of Xi Jinping. And and in fact, China is now becoming a far more closed place uh, and uh, reform has really been consigned to the past. And we're seeing the the Communist Party, which had for a while appeared to retreat from a lot of aspects of day-to-day life, now um, being asserted, um, now um, central uh, to just about every aspect of life in China.
0: Yes, and you make that point in, a piece, in the piece you wrote for the Sunday Times that Song Ping very carefully and very cleverly used the exact same language as she had done when he was seeking to make his way. However, you also point out that Tiananmen Square was a moment when there had been a loosening. Before Tiananmen Square, there had been what seemed like a more open or a move towards a more open society, and that was cracked down. And there have been periods where it could have gone either way. China could have opened up more to the world, to their own people, but the old authoritarian impulse remains the strongest impulse, and this is what she has followed.
1: Yes, a lot of scholars will tell you that under communist rule, particularly since the Cultural Revolution, that there have been periods of openness and then uh, and, and degrees of liberalism, uh, which have then been followed by harsher periods of introspection and and repression. And uh, this has has gone in cycles. Uh, the pre Tiananmen Square period was more open. Immediately after. The massacre in Tiananmen Square was far more closed. Um, there was a period from about two thousand and eight, I guess, uh, for maybe eight, um, six to eight years, or two thousand and six, I would say, when the internet was coming into its own, and there were many there were many hopes that it could be a, a tool for more liberalisation, that China became a more open place. Um, but certainly under Xi Jinping, you've seen a reversion to a far more introspective, repressive, and, 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 closed society, and certainly a huge move away from the reform and opening of the Deng period.
0: Could it be that in the case of Tiananmen Square, that they, they, the lesson they drew from Tiananmen Square in the protest was that opening up is dangerous and incompatible with what they want?
1: I think that's absolutely the the case, and uh, also since then, the party under Xi have looked particularly at the collapse of the Soviet Union and communism in East Europe, and they have drawn the lesson from that, that this was a result of weakness on the part of the Communist Party. And that China should never allow itself to to go down that road where the power of the party yes. is in any way compromised or or eroded. And I think it's one of the reasons why they've been such cheerleaders for Vladimir Putin and his desire to sort of rebuild and reassert Russia in the world is because that very much is in tune with what with, with Xi's own belief about uh, about China.
0: Yes, and as you point out, calling uh, Putin his best friend when they met at the Winter Olympics earlier this year and giving his uh, imprimatur, if you like, putting his imprimatur on what Putin is now doing, that many Chinese, and I guess Song Ping would be one of them, would be embarrassed by that and find it shameful that China was, was doing this.
1: I think that is the case, Eamon, because you are seeing grumbles from time to time on social media, sometimes coded references, sometimes in academia. There is, there is quite widespread disquiet about uh, Xi Jinping's relationship with Putin and the damage this is doing to China's standing internationally because they're, they're guilty by association with, course, with, yes. with Putin's barbarity. And that meeting in Beijing just at the start of the Olympic Games not only um, spoke about their great friendship, no limits to their relationship, um, asserted that they would now jointly be building, wanted to build a new international order, a new era. Um, It was all, you know, quite, quite chilling stuff. And and the thing that concerns me, I, I, I don't by this idea that, that somehow, um, China is, is quietly critical of what Putin is doing. I think that in that meeting in February, which was just before the invasion, um, it's impossible for me to think that, that, uh, Putin didn't give Xi some heads up, some sense of what he was planning. But yes. Clearly, um, uh, he sought to assure the Chinese that it would be quick and it would be, painless um, and had it been then China would have been perfectly happy I mean they don't China doesn't have any issue with Putin's aims his world his world view um, I think where they have an unease is over the over the very public brutality. Um, with an emphasis on the public. Yes. I don't think they have an issue with brutality, but the very public brutality and the incompetence of the Russian armed forces. Uh, and don't forget the PLA in many respects are organized along similar lines as, as the Russian army. So I think Putin's incompetence and the very public brutality uh, are sources of unease for Xi. But fundamentally, there's no disagreement. They have very similar worldviews.
0: Yes. And, uh, it, it, just as an aside in your piece in Sunday's Sunday Times, you say that she disappeared from public view for a few days last week or recently. And there were rumors that there'd been a coup. So even in that society, or maybe particularly in that closed uh, society, the possibility even if you're at the top of getting a good night's sleep would be somewhat diminished
1: yeah i mean that that was that was extraordinary because those rumors it was the weekend before before last i mean i got yeah. several calls and emails saying hey you know what's what's going on what's your reading of this because a lot of these online uh, rumors talked of tra- tanks on the streets, of airspace being closed, of Xi being under house arrest. Now, if you look at it closely, the sources of this were very unreliable um, and the evidence was non-existent. So they were they were unsubstantiated. Um, but the fact that it got the traction it did, I think yes. was testament to the kind of slightly queasy feeling that there has been in in Beijing of late. And the problem with, with, with Xi becoming leader for life is it lessens the possibility of a, of a, a, a simple, um, transfer of power or leadership. And it increases the possibility of a messy and unstable transfer of power further down the line. Um, you know, and it s-
0: also increases the degree of cronyism being surrounded by uh, yes, men and women, if there are any, I'm not sure. Very if there few, are.
1: very few, very
0: few in <laughs> leadership. But uh, it does sort of, uh, and again, the old revolutionary Song Ping understood this, and by the looks of it, Deng Xiaoping also the need for renewal, the need to keep developing. You've been in that part of the world a lot, Ian, and you understand it, and. Most of us, I think, have come to a conclusion in the last 12, 18 months, certainly the last 12 months, that geopolitically something has changed in a very fundamental way, particularly when he opens his arms to Putin, and particularly when they are circling Taiwan very aggressively, entering airspace and doing all kinds of things in the Straits of Taiwan, that the world is now firmly set on a new course all those years we spent trying to build relationships with the russians through trade uh, build relationship with china through trade all of that is over now that there is a new geopolitical reality it is the west it is liberal democracy against these authoritarian Societies who are not going to change. We are not going to change them by. I mean, even as recently as George Os- Osborne and David Cameron, they wanted to get closer to China and trade with them and develop relationships. These things aren't going to happen, are they?
1: No, I mean it. Just actually to pick you up on a. Um, um on that point, it, it, it the point earlier about Xi Jinping and surrounding himself with cronies. I mean, that that is a real danger because it's yes. you know, it's telling the emperor what he wants to hear. Yes, and, and that's dangerous in any society. We saw that with Putin, I think, in the run up to Ukraine. Um, but to, to to that point, you're absolutely right. I mean, there has been a belief. I think it was always an erroneous belief. It was self serving in many respects that you get sort of liberalisation through trade. That trade and economic ties were this great answer to to issues, and that sooner or later, if you tightened and had closer trade, investment, market links, then it would do away with a lot of tensions, a lot of um, conv- possible conflicts, and and in fact, societies which were authoritarian would become more liberal um, as they became richer, and I think. That hasn't happened. And China is a, is a classic case in point that as it has become wealthier, um, it has become more repressive and yes. the party has no intent uh, of giving up on its monopoly of power. You know, quite, quite the reverse. Um, and I think people are realizing as well that, and in fact, I reference this in my book when I talk about China's new Cold War, that they have become the master of war by other means. That, 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 Xi Jinping, um, has used trade, investment, market access as tools of co- coercion, um, tools of statecraft. He, 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 this is not just something that happens now. And again, it's routine. We've seen it at its most egregious against Australia, against Lithuania. Uh, we're seeing it against Taiwan. And, and this presents a real dilemma for those, for those who I think in the last government and this, Current one in the UK trying to grapple with a new China policy. How do you or can you separate these notions of security and human rights on the one hand? Yes, let's be critical of China, but try and engage on trade, investment, market access when China is uses them routinely for coercion, and so it demands yes. a, it demands a, a lot more caution uh, about. Um, Chinese investment and trade, especially in in areas sensitive, uh, uh, whether it's on strategic or or security issues. And I I don't think really a lot of our political leaders have come close to to realizing that.
0: Well, (laughs) with all due respect, the political leaders in recent times in Downing Street wouldn't Mm -hmm. know what's going on in Whitehall. But recently, as recently as a week or 10 days ago, China was putting forward a proposition that Taiwan could take the same route as Hong Kong. In other words, one country, two systems. That's been floated. I mean, Hong Kong surely proved beyond doubt that these people, you couldn't do business with these people. And if they're proposing that for Taiwan, it's almost laughable, but he did propose it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is laughable. And don't forget, Elon Musk was the latest Ask one, the to, one. To, to, yes. to, throw. I mean, yeah. you know,
0: frankly, you should I, go away that much. I mean, what a, what a twat.
1: I mean, yes, that, exactly. that, that Ukraine and China. I mean, let him stick with what he knows. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that is exactly. Electric but, cars. But, but, but uh, <laughs> you know, the damage he could cause by comments like that, which are plainly ignorant. Um, one country, two systems. Is dead. I mean, it was. It, yes. It, it was. I, I think a lot of people didn't take it too seriously anyway. Over the years, as it was progressively eroded by China, but now it's been completely killed in Hong Kong.
0: Britain's response to that, Ian, kind of struck me at the time because we were covering it with our uh, correspondent in Taiwan. Britain's non-response to uh, what the Chinese. Have done in Hong Kong is remarkable in a way.
1: It is it is quite shocking. I mean, what's happened at Hong Kong is chilling, and I think that the, the British government's reaction, especially given that they have a special responsibility as a former colonial power, yes. as a signatory to the agreement, the handover agreement, the one country, you know, the idea of the Basic Law, which has now been trashed, you know, Britain is a part is a participant in, in all this, and I think. They would argue, oh, we've been critical of China. Well, yes, up to a point. But I think fundamentally it's been far short of what it should be in terms of both the rhetoric and in terms of potential sanctions uh, and, and indeed support for Hong Kong people coming to the UK. And I... Which has, you yeah, know, which let's face it. I mean, it's 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 very welcome, but it, yes, could, it, it but we could yes. have done more. Um, and I think it's quite shocking the degree to which the UK government has been behind the curve on this. Um, and yes, it's it's to to, to go back to Taiwan. It, I, I think that this was a, an incredible wake up call for them. The more recent one is, of course, the Ukraine war. Yes. but a, a lot of people had an affinity with Hong Kong, and after the. The new security law was introduced, which effectively killed off any, turned it into a police state, uh, effectively. One of the the, the most common um, comments on social media in Taiwan was, you know, Hong Kong today, Taiwan tomorrow. They realized that they they had to recognize that uh, this was a real threat and, and any notion of one country, two systems as a model for Taiwan. And don't forget, it was floated even before the Hong Kong
0: Now, as the Communist Party approaches its Congress this weekend, if it seems certain that President Xi will become Chairman Xi uh, for life, and they have enormous internal problems, it seems. The housing crash, the zero-COVID failed project, I would say, from what we know, and as the Sunday Times put it in a headline to your piece, the shine is coming off. The cult of Chairman Xi. How bad are things in China now? How unstable are they? How would that housing crash, for example, change attitudes to wealth and wealth creation? And how much blame attaches itself to Xi?
1: I think a lot of blame does because when you are a dictator, when you are the ultimate person who takes the decisions there is you know it's very difficult sometimes to blame other people as much as he would like to place the blame on local authorities or or banks or or whoever but the the the, the, pro- the property crash is potentially very very serious not only for china but internationally you know yes. pro- property has been a driver the main driver of the chinese economy by some Calculations, it's a quarter or a third of the economy is linked to the property sector. And there's just been a frenzy over the years. China is littered with uh, ghost cities, entire metropolises with um, many, many buildings. Facilities, but hardly any people, which have been built entirely on speculation. This is one huge Ponzi scheme. Um, yes. Arguably, uh, the entire Chinese economy is to um, to, to some, some extent. But you look at the the money that's gone into property. Um, local authorities have get, have have raised their funds through selling land to property developers and through other quite opaque. Finance uh, systems, which are only now coming to light, no one really knows the degree of, of indebtedness because it is so opaque. But the knock-on effects for a crash, well, which is already happening in the, in the I mean, the, all they're trying to do is control the speed of the crash, um, but it is taking place and it is quick, and then and it is potentially very very damaging. And then if you combine that with the economic impact of of the COVID nineteen um lockdowns, which we're seeing a frenzy of again this week. Um, I think because of the uh, uh the Congress with uh, local authorities wanting to prove that they're you know being enforcing the will of Xi. Um, yes. And you know, internationally the international main flagship lending program, the Belt Belt and Roll Initiative, is unraveling because of bad debts. If you look at the latest Pew surveys And see that China is more unpopular than it's ever been internationally. You know, it's got very little soft power. So you wonder what all that money was for. Uh, You you take all this together and it's, you know, it's quite a challenging uh, um, future, I think, just as Xi uh, is given his, his third term and possibly job for life.
0: The question of Taiwan must be close to the top of their agenda. Would that be accurate? And if it is, they would look at Ukraine, as you as you pointed out, Ian, as a kind of test run for the West. Uh, Are they weak, divided, and will they stand idly by? Now, um, Joe Biden has said very clearly that if they move on Taiwan, America will respond. He said, actually, more, as I'm sure you know, and his own people wanted him to. He committed America to becoming involved. Is there a sort of inevitability about the Taiwan thing? I...
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I'd quite call
0: it an inevitability, but there's certainly a
1: very serious threat there. And you know, I, I mean, I think the. It's commun-
0: much more important to them than Hong Kong in some ways, isn't it? Very
1: much more so. Uh, yeah. And Xi Jinping has made it a central tenet of his, yes. you know, rejuvenation of China. And, you know, he's turned the party into a fairly rabid national- nationalist party now rather than the Communist Party. And this goes to the heart of it. It's very personal to him. Um, but they've got a way up uh, when and how, uh, because for him to make a lunge for Taiwan and to fail would probably be the end of him and possibly the Communist Party because it's so central yes. to their project. And, you know, they've looked at Ukraine. They've looked at the bungling Russian attempt. Operation in, in Ukraine. They've looked at Western sanctions. They've looked at the way that the Ukrainian invasion has in many ways reinvigorated the Western alliance and Western values. Um, you know, central to the Communist Party thinking and G's thinking is that the West is in terminal decline. Yes. Um, and you know China's rise will be inexorable to replace this decaying and decadent West. I mean, that's fundamental to the way the Communist Party thinks. And that has that also been challenged. Of course, an invasion of Taiwan would not be easy. You know, the geography, the climate, um, there's a lot of things there that count against it. And of course, the Taiwanese are looking at Ukraine and learning from Ukraine, especially this notion of hybrid warfare, what the Ukrainians call the pork cupine strategy, which is small, mobile, highly lethal yes. weaponry, and, and you literally aim to make the island unswallowable,
0: yes, uh,
1: uh, yeah, in, in, or, or you make, make by making the cost of an invasion incredibly high. Now, the American policy has always been strategic ambiguity. You know, you don't, yes. you won't say clearly, but I think that's becoming increasingly less ambiguous, and um, we've seen these a number of statements now from Biden. Yes, afterwards, the White House has sought to roll back a little bit. But I think it's inconceivable that the Americans wouldn't intervene. Um, what shape that intervention might take is harder to say. And also, intriguingly, the role of Japan, because Japan has more and more identified its own security with that of Taiwan yes. and, and the region. And, uh, I, I think all these things will be weighing on Xi. And some people would argue it might f- force him to take action sooner. I mean, he's abandoned the old Deng Xiaoping notion of bide my time. You know, in his view, yes. his time has come. Um, so it, it is dangerous. And I know there's a lot of debate going on in the States at the moment. And a lot of people argue that the best deterrent is to be a good deal less ambiguous and make it clear that that the west would stand up for taiwan and you know if they invade taiwan it's not just a territorial grab it's it would be to crush a liberal democracy it would be more fundamental i think in people's thinking than just uh, grabbing a, a, another police state as as taiwan was 30 years ago before they turned into the world's arguably the world's most successful democracy liberal open diverse everything in fact that china isn't
0: Yes, it's just a final question, Ian. Uh, It's about the presence or absence in China of dissidents, a dissident movement, the kind of thing that in the Eastern European dictatorships existed. It doesn't seem very visible to us. So in that sense, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is... In complete control, really. Uh, Is that an accurate view?
1: To some extent. I mean, I I would say it's not as open as it used to be. Um, You don't have identifiable go-to dissidents because that's become a lot more dangerous. The surveillance state is everywhere. It's become more difficult um, to speak out even subtly, uh, such is a degree of monitoring on social media. But that said, I, th- I think there is a lot of opposition to Xi. I think there, are- he's made a lot of enemies. This multi year anti corruption campaign, which is really just a purge of yes. a, of of his enemies stepped up ahead of the congress um he argues that that he wants to eradicate corruption from the system, but unfortunately, corruption is the system yes uh, you know it just becomes a game of musical chairs, you know move your own people into the, into that trough um, yes. but uh, I think that he has made a lot of enemies. There are a lot of people critical of him, biding their time, looking for their moment. Um, But certainly you do not see the the high-profile dissidents of the past, and they have quite successfully been able to, through technology, through surveillance, to eradicate a lot of uh, the criticism and a lot of the dissent from social media and the internet.
0: Okay, Ian, we're very grateful to you for joining us. And uh, I just repeat, the the title of your book is "The Fire of the Dragon," and we've checked while we've been on air; it's available at Easons and Dubrays and other all the good bookshops in Dublin. And Ian has written four books. This is the latest of them, "The Fire of the Dragon: China's New Cold War." It should be a fascinating read. China is really the most fascinating and uh, dangerous place. And uh, we're grateful to you, Ian, for joining us on the stand. Thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you, Eamon. It's been a pleasure.
0: And thanks to all of you who listened. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.